Amen. You can be seated. Good morning, Covenant College. Seriously? Good morning, Covenant College. We're beginning a new faculty chapel series this morning, and uh, Covenant College, as you know, is part of the Reformed tradition, which is one strain of even broader heritage of Protestant Christianity. This fall, Protestant Christianity observes its 500th birthday dating back to Martin Luther's mythic assertion of Christian conscience in nailing his 95 Theses to the door of the Wittenberg Castle Church on October 31st, 1517. We at Covenant love our Reformed heritage and stand firm in its historic witness to Christian orthodoxy. But whereas we might know and understand what we mean when we call ourselves Reformed, when we think of the doctrines of God and of humanity, sin, salvation, and scripture, what bearing does this heritage have on the ways we live our lives, pursue our callings, and conduct our work in our disciplines? In celebration of the 500th anniversary of Protestant Christianity, the faculty will explore a new chapel series that asks the question, Reformed for what? The series is not a narrow look at theology or the doctrines of grace, but rather a consideration of the social, intellectual, and cultural implications of the Reformed tradition on the ways we understand our mission in life as faithful disciples of Jesus. Dr. Cliff Foreman, professor of English and member of the Covenant faculty since 1986, is here this morning to get us started. Dr. Foreman is no shrinking violet and rarely steers clear of good, a good argument or controversy, even when he should. Join me in welcoming him this morning uh, to begin our series. Before I start, uh, I'm aware of what day it is. It's September 11th. I'm also aware that you people get younger every year. And so there are a few of you out here that actually witnessed what happened on September 11th. Perhaps some seniors and juniors did. Uh, but if you or your family lost loved ones or if you have been moved and uh, moved to tears by what you saw that happened on that day, my sympathies to you. May Christ comfort you. Um, before I became a Christian, I lived in an enchanted world. It wasn't necessarily a happy world, but it was an enchanted world. Uh, for example, nowhere did this seem more real to me than in Yosemite Valley. I remember a day in the fall of 1986, sitting in a meadow in Yosemite Valley. The grass was jade green. Didn't, that was, pun not intended. Um, the air was clear, California clear air. The, uh, the temperature was cool. Uh, it was beautiful. Uh, a young man in a buckskin jacket was playing the flute, and a young woman in a long dress was dancing improvisationally in the middle of this meadow. And it seemed to me that nature was full of wonder 
and mystery. There were strange things going on. I didn't exactly believe in elves, but I believed in something like elves that were in the environment. And it seemed as though everything in the universe was filtering down into my consciousness. And that consciousness was wonderful, and it was something that uh, had, something had led me to this point in my life, and something would lead me beyond it into adventures that I had no awareness of. It was in uh, 1968. Uh, three and a half years after that, I became a Christian. Sounds like a letdown. <laughs> in, some ways, in some ways, I'm going to say it was. Um, story of my conversion is complicated. Uh, I would have said at the time, and it reflected my experience, that I had made a decision to abandon the life I'd lived, which was not a happy life, which was a life of sin, and to follow Jesus. But at the same time, I was aware that I'd been corralled into the Christian faith. It was though God had driven me into a corner and left me no uh, alternative but to turn around and to fall into his arms. I felt as though the hound of heaven had chased me down when I got saved. Uh, when I got saved, I reverted to the Christianity I'd grown up with. And I think that happens in, in, uh, to some extent to all of us, unless you were raised in a non-Christian home. You go back to the God that you knew. I knew God as a child in some way that I'll never understand. I went back to that God. Now, that was the God of dispensationalism and fundamentalism. Uh, I'd been trained in that brand of American evangelicalism. And I think all of us, it's important for you to realize that your faith is a function of American evangelicalism. And uh, when you decide to know God, you know God, but you also see God through the filter of the ways that your parents and your ancestors knew him. And the God that you see may be a bit distorted from the God who's actually there. And so the course of your life is an attempt to know that God better, to know him more, more clearly to uh, come to understand him better. So uh, that was certainly true in my life. Um, let me tell you something about that God and about what he meant to me. You know, when you first converted, you want, you want to serve God totally, and so you abandon everything you did before. Uh, I radically renounced my former life, and I decided that I wanted to be a full-time Christian service servant, and that obviously God was calling me into the ministry. Uh, I had to be that in order to justify all the work he'd done in saving me from all of these sins. I had to become a minister. One thing I didn't do then that I needed to do and should have done was to take an inventory of my life and to say, what are the things in me that God wants to change, and what are the things in me that are part of who I am, that God wants to use in my life? I didn't do that at the time. Had I done it, I would have realized that there were a lot of desires and interests and uh, intuitions that I had that I couldn't just throw away as a Christian. So uh, I, I became a Christian. I immediately became a political prisoner. I won't go into that. I spent a year and a half in federal prison. After I got out of federal prison, I became a freshman at Gordon College. Gordon College was a step for me because my pastors wouldn't have wanted me to go. They didn't want me to go to Gordon College. My pastor told me, don't go there. And my first day of class at Gordon, I had two accidents on the way to school in the New England snowstorm. So here was God telling me, don't go to Gordon College. But I did go to Gordon College. Uh, I was 22 years old. I was one of those older students. My experiences were different from my classmates. I'd experienced sins that a lot of them hadn't experienced. And uh, uh, I was dedicated to being the person God wanted me to be, to be a Bible major. 
So I took a lot of Bible courses, which I don't regret. Um, But sometime during my freshman year, I got called out of the ministry. I don't know exactly what it was. Uh, Professor Schmick from Gordon-Conwell Seminary spoke at Covenant. I know he spoke on 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 the Protestant doctrine of calling that God calls us to be his servant in any occupation, and that there was no difference between a full-time Christian servant and a Christian bricklayer, that we needed to serve God in the way he called us to do it. And so I felt called out of the ministry. I didn't, I no longer realized, I realized I should no longer be a Bible major. What would I major in? Well, thinking back to those experiences that led me to Yosemite Valley, I remembered the love that I had for poetry and fiction as a younger person. My whole time in prison, a year and a half, I had, I had read only one novel, Far From the Matting Crowd by Thomas Hardy. Everything else I read was either the Bible or a Bible study book. And so here I was at Gordon College deciding that God had in some ways called me to set myself free from the prison of biblical studies and <laughs> uh, to enter into the joy of being an English major. Um, now, if you, feel, if you feel stirrings in your heart, uh, read Moby Dick. And if you still want to be an English major, come talk to me. Um, so uh, I changed my major to literature. But in some ways, that put me in a fix. Uh, I was raised in a branch of the church that didn't know what to do with literature. Uh, my type of Christianity said that human beings in the world had one purpose, and that was to get saved. And after you got saved, your purpose was to get other people saved. And that was it. Uh, what was the world? Any, any joy I might feel in the creation was tempered by the threat that the material world posed to my spiritual well-being. The world was stuff. God had created it for our use, but it was important that we avoid the temptation that had spread before us. The way my Christian upbringing taught me to see the creation was pretty similar to enlightened rationalism. Though there was a God up there, Human beings had a soul, whatever that was, and there were miracles somewhere back there in the, in the distant past. Uh, but other than that, we were enlightened, enlightenment rationalists. The world was a rational scientific place. Uh, furthermore, most of the cultural products around me were tainted by sin. Most of the great writers and filmmakers and poets of my day were non-Christians. And so what do you do with this stuff here? Well, you expose it. You show what's wrong to it. You study why Hemingway committed suicide. You study why Sylvia Plath committed suicide, and that becomes your literary criticism. So here I was at Gordon College, majoring in literature, and I realized I had absolutely no understanding of how a Christian should major in literature. I had no Christian models uh, before me, Uh, but I was at Gordon. So uh, I began to take other liberal arts courses, and then finally I got to take my first English course, and I took it with a man named Tom Howard. Tom Howard was cool. <laughs> I mean, this man, he was, uh, he was from, he was very rich. He married a rich woman. He lived in Beverly Farms. Uh, but he was from a family that had an evangelical history. His father had been the editor of the Sunday School Times. His brother was the head of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. His sister, Elizabeth Elliot, wrote the book Through Gates of Splendor. She's a great Christian writer. Uh, she had been married to Uh, Nate, uh, Tom, no, what is Elliot's first name? Jim Elliot, who was one of the missionaries who was martyred in Ecuador, and she she wrote a book about that that was a New York Times bestseller. So here I was sitting under this man who was himself a great writer and had written 
a memoir called Christ the Tiger about his own life. Uh, so I wanted to be like Tom Howard. It was the easiest thing that I could do would be to become a disciple of Tom Howard. Uh, Tom taught me uh, 17th century literature. Uh, Tom taught me Shakespeare. But Tom Howard also uh, knew a lot about the great Christian writers of the 20th century, people like C.S. Lewis, Charles Williams, George MacDonald, Madeleine Langle, Langle uh, Dorothy Sayers, uh, G.K. Chesterton, Flannery O'Connor, Gerard Manley Hopkins, and especially T.S. Eliot. And Tom taught us that um, these were the great Christian writers of the 20th century. What did they all have in common? Well, they were all either Anglicans or Catholics. Why is it that the greatest writers of the 20th century are Christians are Anglicans or Catholics? And Tom said it was because they had experienced Christian, the Christian liturgy and they'd experienced the Mass. They'd experienced uh, that event in which the priest raises the host up and it becomes the body and blood of Christ. And so for these people, human experience, the world around us, at any moment could be a, a purveyor of the truth of God. God could break into human experience miraculously, as he does in the sacrament, and could, uh, could speak in the world like that. Certainly you see that in the works of a writer like Flannery O'Connor, the power that she gets from that tradition. Now Tom would talk about the tradition I come out of and would say, well, your pastor, he'll hold up the Wonder Bread and the Welch's grape juice and say, well, this is nothing but Wonder Bread and this is nothing but Welch's grape juice. How in the world can you get any sense of the profundity of reality out of a ceremony like that, Tom would say. And so um, I became, in some, I mean, I, I love Tom and I loved his teaching, but I had some problems with what Tom Howard was saying. It was like a chafing tag on the back of the collar of my Oxford shirt. Isn't that a great metaphor? In fact, somebody, somebody should pay me to just sit around all day and write metaphors like that. Uh, some of those problems were, were superficial. I was middle class. I was proud to be an American middle class person. And Tom was upper class. I mean, he was a deacon at Christ Church, right down the street from Myopia Hunt Club, where the royal family would come to America to play polo. Um, it just wasn't my thing in a lot of ways. And also, I wanted to study American literature. I loved Hawthorne and Melville and Emily Dickinson and Henry David Thoreau. Was I to teach those people as people who were in a tradition that was wrong from the start? I mean, how could these people have written great literature when they came out of American Puritanism and not out of Anglicanism? Um, and I had some deeper problems as well. I strongly suspected that the doctrine of transubstantiation was a doctrine that had been invented by the Catholic Church in order to uh, protect their franchise on turning uh, bread, and, bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ. Uh, and I realized that if there was one doctrine that was the hallmark of the Protestant Reformation, it was sola scriptura, that our teaching about God, our thinking about God should come from the Bible. And it didn't seem to me that Tom's teaching came from the Bible. As a matter of fact, Tom taught us that one of the reasons why Protestants were so confused was we didn't have a teaching magisterium and we needed the teaching magisterium of the Catholic Church to tell us what the Bible said. Well, I couldn't really buy into that idea. And so I left the paradise of Gordon College to go up into the heathen world of graduate school um, in, in a fix again. 
the Christian writers I respected in my own time, the greatest writers of the 20th century, were people who believed in the ideas that Tom taught. And here was I, doubting those ideas and yet wanting to be a writer and wanting to be a critic of literature and not having any sort of sense of what my Christian background could be doing that. So I got to Washington University and I took a course called New England Tradition with a man named Norman Pettit. Norman Pettit was one of the ed editors of the Yale University edition of the works of Jonathan Edwards, and Norman Pettit edited the Life of David Brainerd, which was edited by, by Jonathan Edwards. Um, and I began to study Jonathan Edwards in that class. Now, it may seem strange to you that we were studying Jonathan Edwards in a literature class, but Pettit was convinced and convinced me that Edwards had the soul and the, and the heart of a poet. Um, when you look at a sermon like Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, and I hate to mention it because it's kind of a character, characterization of him, and he wasn't the fire and brimstone uh, preacher, but when you look at the metaphors of that sermon, the spider dangling over the pit of hell, and, and you see the emotional power of that sermon, you realize, here's a man who knows how to use the English language to move people. It's no wonder that sermons like that were used by God to spark the Great Awakening. Now, footnote right here. He's the guy in the powder wig in the middle of that window up there, Jonathan Edwards, and he was a slaveholder. That's my footnote. I don't know what to do with that. I don't know, I don't want to justify that. Um, talk to Matt Boss about it. <laughs> uh, talk to, talk to um, what's his name, who will be here? I'm sorry, Carl Ellis about it. Um, yeah, I'll just leave it at that. That's my first footnote. Um, I began to study Edwards, and two texts of Edwards were particularly important to me. One text was called The Nature of True Virtue. Uh, Edwards compares virtue to beautiful behavior, and he says beautiful behavior is uh, balanced in the way that we see it. But beyond that, he says the beauty of virtue is the beauty of God and the beauty of God's holiness. And he says that God's holiness is beautiful. Beauty is at the center of Jonathan Edwards' theology. Uh, as a matter of fact, for Edwards, salvation is when God gives us the new sight. God gives us a new vision by which we can see God and see his holiness and see how beautiful he is. And perseverance of the saints is the fact that we are in love. We're in love with God. And so we persevere because once you've seen that holiness, you want it. And so you continue to pursue it because of that. Now, a corollary of that is uh, Jonathan Edwards says in that text that God loves to do all things by analogy. And so the beauty of this world is a reflection of the holiness of God. When God created the world, he created a world that was analogous to himself. And so when we as Christians with the new sight look at nature and look at beauty and look at all the things that happen around us, including hurricanes, including eclipses, we can see reflected in those things the God who created them. That was the idea that I needed to escape from the idea of transubstantiation. Then the other text that impressed me was Images or Shadows of Divine Things. In that text, uh, Edwards was preparing, these are notebooks that were left unpublished at his, at his death. In that text, Edwards was preparing to write a systematic theology. He wanted to write a systematic theology that was chronological. Why? Because he was kind of creative. So, so he decided, I'm going to start with creation and talk about the way God revealed himself in the creation and then go forward from there. So in his notebooks at his death, he had all of these preparations for that text. And he went through the natural world 
and looked at all of the beautiful things in the natural world and talked about the way that they were meaningful, the way that they were used uh, in scripture to convey meaning, and then sometimes creatively on his own, what he saw in those things. Now, I could go into detail about that, but I'm going to save that for American literature class later this week when we talk about Edwards. Uh, but here, here are some um, quotations from Images or Shadows. Here's what Edwards wrote about the beauty of nature. Thus, there is the resemblance of a decent trust, dependence, and acknowledgement in the planets continually moving round the sun, receiving his influences by which they are made happy, bright, and beautiful. A decent attendance in the secondary planets, an image of majesty, power, and glory, and beneficence in the sun in the midst of all. This, uh, tis very probable that that wonderful suitableness of green for the grass and plants, the blue of the sky, the white of the clouds, the colors of flowers, consists in a complicated proportion that these colors make one with another. Problem with speaking from paper. One with another. Either in the magnitude of the rays, the number of vibrations that are caused by the optic nerve, or some other way. And he goes on to talk about what Newton discovered in his optics. Uh, another statement. The fields and woods seem to rejoice. And how joyful do the birds seem to be in it. How much a resemblance is there in every grace in the fields covered with plants and flowers when the sun shines serenely and undisturbedly upon them. How a resemblance, I say, of every grace and beautiful disposition of mind of an inward toward a superior cause, preserver, benevolent benefactor, and a fountain of happiness. Uh, there are beauties that are more palpable and explicable, and there are hidden and secret beauties. The former pleases, and we can tell why. We can explain and particularly point forth agreements that render the thing pleasing. Such are artificial regularities. Uh, we can tell wherein the regularity lies that affects us. The latter sort, the hidden beauties, are those beauties that delight us and we can't tell why. Thus we find ourselves pleased in beholding the color of the violets, but we know not what secret regularity of harmony it is that creates that pleasure in our mind. These hidden beauties are commonly by far the greatest because the more complex a beauty is, the more hidden it is. In this latter sort consists principally the beauty of the world and very much in light and color. Thus, mere light is pleasing to the mind. If it be the degree of effulgence, tis very sensible, and mankind have agreed in it. They all represent glory and extraordinary beauty by brightness. Uh, Edward's understanding is colored by a neoclassical aesthetic that stresses harmony and balance. He could have used a healthy dose of romanticism, it seems to me, in his aesthetics. Nevertheless, um, he, he, he isn't always as pleasant and as light and as sweet, he used to use the word sweet all the time. I always thought that he must have suffered from tooth decay because he's so hooked, hooked on sweetness. But um, uh, he describes thunderstorms as well and frightening things in the natural world. Uh, reading Edwards and seeing the way that he found meaning and found beauty in nature helped me to see that in the doctrine of creation and in the incarnation, there is abundant fuel for an artist, an artistic understanding and appreciation of creation. And it showed me that there was also a way that Isaac Christian could read and appreciate 
literature, whether it's written by Christians or non-Christians, when, when a non-Christian writer sees the significance and the beauty of the natural world, that writer is in tune with something created by God. Now, a non-Christian writer might distort that, might in some ways see it incorrectly. Nevertheless, some of the great non-Christian writers really do tell us a lot about what, what God intended when he created the world and when he created us. It also helped me to understand something about the Catholic aesthetic and why it was, um, why it was so appealing. Why was transubstantiation such an appealing idea? Why did Tom Howard point to that as something that made a difference for Catholic writers? And it seemed to me it's because transubstantiation, Catholic writers are onto something. They're onto the fact that God uh, in the incarnation uh, said something about the glories of this world. They're onto the fact that th this world does reflect God and that at any moment, the presence of God can break through uh, our, into our lives, into our actions, into the things we see around us, and we can get a vision of the truth of nature uh, from that. Um, so, transubstantiation is at best unnecessary. <laughs> uh, it, it, it's a misunderstanding, but it's a misunderstanding that grows out of a proper understanding of what God did in the creation. I was raised in a part of the Christian church that, that concentrated on the doctrine of salvation and ignored the doctrine of creation. Uh, I was taught that the purpose of people was to get saved. Once they got saved, well, then it was kind of iffy what they would do on the basis of that salvation, other than, as I said, to get other people saved <laughs> as well. But there was no idea of the restoration of who we are, the restoration of creation, that should occur after our salvation, I, I really wasn't, didn't get any emphasis on the importance of God's creation. That God created this world, and it is not only beautiful, but it's significant. It's meaningful. And that you and I, when we see meaning in the world, and when we create it artistically, when we create metaphors, and when we create works of art, that we are digging into something that God put there. That's the, that is the personality of Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us that the world was created by him, for him, and through him. And the Bible also tells us that we are created too in the image of God, that we share with him all of those understandings of creation that are part of our human nature. That's what I got out of Reformed theology, was a respect for creation and the importance of creation. Um, that, that we're not just living in a fallen world and we're putting up with it until we can go to heaven when we die that our life here should be a celebration of the glory and the beauty of God and of the things that he gives us and of the talents and the gifts that he gives us. Whether that is a vision of the glory of art, a vision of the glory of the solar system, uh, of, the, of the beautiful harmony of mathematics, uh, each of those disciplines is a place where as Christians, as part of God's creation, we can reflect his glory, and that's something that uh, Reformed theology gives us. So, I am convinced in my credo at the end here, the Reformed tradition seems to me to be the only Protestant theology on which one can build a living and a vibrant foundation for Christian art and for Christian education. The only tradition that will help us to show the presence of God is preeminent in all things. I believe that because I'm convinced that God answers our questions in the revelation of Jesus Christ, and he answers our questions in his word written. 
so I wanted to end this by, uh, in honor of Mel Brooks, a little bit of Yiddish and saying, Reformed, Schmeformed. <laughs> it's not. Reformed theology is nothing if it's not biblical theology. And to be reformed should be to be biblical. And uh, in this area of my life, I found that uh, reformed theology gave me a biblical answer to my problems as a person who wanted to understand literature and understand art. So let's pray. Uh, I thank you, God, for your word, and I thank you for your son. I thank you for your son who in his life revealed to us the truth about who you are, who is a transparent window through which we could see you. And I thank you for your word in which you give us uh, ideas and propositions and also wonderful stories and uh, where we uh, hear your half of the conversation that we as believers have with you, where we can come to know you more correctly and more fully. Uh, thank you for these blessed gifts. And I pray that as we uh, study here that it, each of us and the problems we face in our disciplines, that you'll give us patience to wait for you and to find in you the answers that we need. Correct us, help us to see things more clearly, help us to grow. Thank you for the opportunity we have here at Covenant. Continue to bless this campus. And I ask you for this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Peace.